starts with this young woman named Kitty Genovese. And she had just come home from work. She'd worked all the way till two o'clock in the morning. She'd driven home and she began walking back to her apartment. But as she did, she noticed that someone was watching her. Not only watching her, but following her back to her apartment. She had no idea who the person was and she thought it was very suspicious. So she began to walk faster back to her home, hoping to get there before the person caught up to her. Well, before she could get to the door of her, front, uh, of her apartment, the man had violently stabbed her twice in the back. She began crying out for help, crying out to God, for anyone to help her and to stop her, to stop the man from hurting her. Now, there were three things that were strange about this incident. The first one was the fact that there was no apparent motivation. The man had no idea who Kitty was, in fact, when he was interviewed later, he said he simply had just created the goal in his mind to kill someone that night. That was his only motivation. Secondly, the sheer brutality of the murder. It was horrendous the amount of uh, stabbings that Kitty had to endure. And again, it was completely unmotivated. The brutality seemed unwarranted. But the thing that frightened people the most was the fact that 38 witnesses had sat by and idly done nothing while she was murdered. Now, what had happened was, as she was going back and she'd, she was being attacked, one man turned on his light and began to shout out at, uh, outside his window. And after the shouting stopped, he turned off his light and went back. Two people had called the police and they reported it as a domestic abuse uh, situation because that's what they thought it was. And when the cops heard about it, they thought the situation would resolve itself. It wasn't worth them attending, so the cops didn't even turn up. And so on that night, with 38 people just idly watching by and sitting, there, sitting back, Kitty Genovese had died. This shocked America when it, uh, when it came out what had happened to this lady, because it frightened everyone that this may just happen to you. It kind of shook everyone's faith in humanity. If there were 38 people watching, and not one of them had done something to help this poor lady out. It, it started what became a study into what became later known as the Genovese Syndrome, or the bystander effect. Al Genie, in his book, Why Is It So Hard to Be Good, writes this. He says, The bystander effect suggests a state of pluralistic ignorance in which each bystander or witness decides that since nobody is concerned, nothing is wrong, and nothing need be done. It also produces an effect called the diffusion of responsibility, whereby each person assumes that if something is really wrong, somebody else must be doing something about it. So no individual feels compelled to take action. So the irony here is that the more people there are in a situation, the more likely each person is to delegate responsibility to another person. And if there are 38 witnesses, well, there are 37 other people who can take care of the situation. Why do I have to? If there's really a problem, somebody else will f figure it out. Someone else will actually address the problem. And so what it does is it creates, once again, this diffusion of responsibility, delegating that responsibility to other people. The irony of that story is that if there was only one witness, Kitty's chance of survival would have increased. Because if you're the only one person there, there's no one you can delegate responsibility to. You're watching this take place, and now 
you have to decide, I have to go and help out that person because I'm the only one who can stop this. So the sick irony is that the more people that were there to help, the lower her chance of survival was. And many people have tried to try and understand why is it that humanity finds it so hard to be good. As Algini says, why is it so hard to be good? And I think one of the things that he misses out on is uh, a big picture perspective of the sinful nature. That's ultimately what it comes down to. We all have this innate sinful nature, and a lot of the time it leads us to find it difficult to do good. But in relation to this story, it's more of being a bystander. Being a bystander is the failure to do good. And so when we're looking at this specific type of situation, we're actually looking at a specific type of sin. David actually covers four different types of sin in just the one verse. This is called the, the psalm, uh, this psalm is referred to as the joy of forgiveness. And in just two verses, David tells us four different types of sin. He says, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So what do each of these mean? Well, if you go back to the original Hebrew, each of them has a different meaning. For example, transgression refers to a willful sin, rebellion, or disobedience. Sin simply refers to missing the mark or failure to do one's duty. Iniquity refers to a crookedness or a deformed in a state. And deceit refers to falsehood or guile. So David's giving the context in the psalm. He says, blessed is the man who all of these different types of sin, they're all forgiven. But the one we want to look at specifically today is the sin chatar, missing the mark or failure to do one's duty. That is essentially what all of the people in the story of Kitty Genovese were committing. Now, whenever we refer to sins such as murder, theft, uh, adultery, we refer to those as sins of commission, actively doing something sinful, actively participating in evil. Whereas this sin, chatar, missing the mark of failure to do one's duty, is referred to as the sin of omission, failing to do something good. It's not necessarily doing something evil, but it's just not doing anything good. And Jesus actually has a lot to say about this idea of committing the sin of omission. And we're going to look at this story of the Good Samaritan and have a look at what it really means. So turn with me to Luke chapter 10, and we'll begin in verse 25. Luke chapter 10, and we begin in verse 25, and we begin to see what Jesus has to say about being an innocent bystander. What Jesus has to say about committing the sin of omission. Now what I'd like us to bear in mind uh, as we read through this story is that the story is often interpreted in one way. And I think it's a very valid way for us to look at it, and I think it's a great message for us to take away, and we're going to address that. But I think that there's also a deeper meaning to this parable that Jesus was trying to convey that we often read over and that we often miss. So what we're going to do is we're going to read the story through, and then we're going to look at it through what I'm going to call two different lenses. In other words, just two different perspectives or two sort of different interpretations, but each of them build upon the other. Lens 2 is just a deeper look at what Lens 1 is looking at. So let's just begin reading this parable of Jesus in verse 25. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. 
And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? Notice Jesus, he knows who he's talking to. He addresses his audience. He says, he knows that the man he's talking to is a lawyer. So he says, all right, what does the law say? You tell me. So the lawyer answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Notice the lawyer isn't quite satisfied with that answer. He wants to justify himself. If he can narrow down the definition of who is his neighbor, well, then he's probably in the right. Then he can inherit eternal life. So he tries to get Jesus to narrow down this definition. Who really is my neighbor then? And Jesus replies by telling the parable. Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked, and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Jesus intentionally uses a Samaritan as the hero of his story because the Israelites couldn't stand the Samaritans. They despised the Samaritans. They didn't even want to be in the presence of these people. And here is Jesus making a Samaritan the hero of this story. Verse 34, so he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So, which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And the lawyer said, he who showed mercy on him. Notice the lawyer can't even bring himself to say the words, the Samaritan. Jesus pretty clearly says there's a priest, there's a Levite, and a Samaritan. He gives the characters in the story essentially names. And yet the, the lawyer can't bring himself to say the Samaritan. So he simply says, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So the classical or most common interpretation of this, uh, the, of this parable goes as follows. What does lens one tell us? What does the basic interpretation of this story tell us? It gives us a really big uh, emphasis on showing uh, justice in society, making sure that the poor and the downtrodden in society are taken care of and they're not uh, abused within society. And the Bible actually has a lot to say about this topic. Micah 6a, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Jeremiah 22.3 says, This is what the Lord says, Be fair-minded and just. Do what is right. Help those who have been robbed. Rescue them from their oppressors. Quit your evil deeds. Do not mistreat foreigners, orphans, and widows. Stop murdering the innocent. And James says, Suppose there are brothers or sisters who need clothes and don't have enough to eat. What good is there in you saying to them, 
God bless you, keep warm, eat well, if you don't give them the bare necessities of life. In other words, what Lens 1 tells us, this interpretation is, we can't just sit back and watch people and never do anything. Lens 1 focuses a lot on, uh, on helping the community, on social justice and not allowing for injustice to take place. So in other words, in this scenario, being an innocent bystander is allowing for injustice and evil to continue within society. It's failing to step in and help people, as we saw demonstrated by the Good Samaritan. James even describes later on, uh, earlier on in, in his book, pardon, that true and undefiled religion is visiting orphans and widows in need. I really like this quote by William James. He says, the only thing necessary for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing. It's true, if, if good people just become innocent bystanders and sit back and allow for injustice to continue, we allow for evil and injustice to prevail. James expands further on this by saying, therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. James is building upon this idea of the sin of omission. If you know to do good and you fail to do it, James says that accounts as sin. In other words, doing nothing is committing the sin of omission. It is allowing and permitting the situation to happen. It is sanctioning evil by doing no good, by doing nothing. In fact, to do nothing is technically to assist in the deed. Having cognitive compassion for someone isn't enough unless it is outpoured and actually demonstrates itself and is expressed through works. James says again, faith without works is dead. Just having it in your mind, cognitively being aware of it, isn't enough unless you act upon it. So, what does Lens 1 tell us in conclusion? Lens 1, it causes us to question and evaluate ourselves. Have you committed the sin of omission by doing nothing? It tells us that simply having compassion for the oppressed does not equate to actively solving the problem of injustice. Instead, true religion is to love one's neighbor by actively helping them by meeting their needs. In other words, there are no such things as innocent bystanders. There are only guilty ones. And that's for us to evaluate in our lives. Are there times where we have been innocent, we've been bystanders and allowed for evil to continue by doing no good. So that's what Lens 1 tells us. That's the most common interpretation of this parable. But I think we often miss the deeper meaning that Jesus was trying to convey in this. This is a great message, and I think it's part of it, but I think we can go deeper than this. And so that's why I want to look at our second sort of interpretation, looking at it from a second perspective, Lens 2. What does Lens 2 tell us about this parable? Uh, come back with me to verse 25 at the very beginning of this parable, all the way back into verse 25. And it says, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Notice this is the context for the rest of the parable. The context of the story and the context of Jesus' response to this question is about salvation. It's not about the temporal, it's about the eternal. Uh, then again, Jesus says in verse 28, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. So the context of this story is actually about spiritual things, not necessarily 
the physical. So, how do we interpret this then? If we're talking about salvation issues, how are we to understand this parable? When I think the, the best way we can uh, figure this out is by asking the question, who do you identify with in the story? Who is it that you identify with in the parable of the Good Samaritan? Is it maybe the priest, the Levite, perhaps the Good Samaritan? I think at times I can identify where I've gone in and helped people, I've been the Good Samaritan, and then I can also point out times in my life where I've just been a bystander. I've been a priest or a Levite and just walked on by the other side. May I propose to you that in order to identify with the Good Samaritan, we first have to identify with the man who was robbed. To illustrate this a little bit better, I just want to read out this quote from Ellen White's The Desire of Ages. She says, In the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus gave a picture of himself and his compassion. Man had been deceived, bruised, robbed, and ruined by Satan, and left to perish. But the Saviour, having compassion on our helpless condition, left his glory to come to our rescue. He found us ready to die, and he undertook our case. He healed our wounds. He covered us with his robe of righteousness. He opened to us a refuge of safety and made complete provisions for us at his own charge. He died to redeem us. Pointing to his own example, he says to his followers, These things I command to you, that ye love one another as I have loved you. So in other words, what Ellen White is trying to get across here is that before we can even begin to uh, take this commission of helping other people's needs, we have to first recognize that we were the man who was robbed at a point. We were down uh, and bruised and beaten by sin and by Satan. And it was only through Jesus that we became saved. Notice again, this parable is all about salvation. It's a salvation issue. So she shows that the truest image of understanding this parable is through an understanding that Jesus saved us, that he healed our wounds. He wrapped us around with his robe of righteousness. And only then when we experience the same love and compassion and mercy that was expressed to us through Jesus, only after we've gone through that experience, can we then go and point people to the same love and compassion and mercy that Jesus showed us? How is it that we're able to lead people to Jesus unless we've already uh, been led by Jesus? If we haven't experienced the same love that Jesus has given to us. So if we truly are to love one's neighbor, and often people associate the, the golden rule again with just meeting physical needs, uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Let's say that you were bruised and beaten down. Wouldn't you want for someone to be able to point you to a place of healing, to a place where you could experience that love? If one is to truly love their neighbor, it's not just to meet their physical needs. People also have spiritual needs. And the greatest spiritual need people have is to be rescued from sin and pointed towards Jesus. But I don't want to just leave you with having that commission because... It's a difficult thing. The fact of the matter is, it is hard to be good because of this innate sinful nature. And sometimes we find it difficult to go and actively do that. Sometimes it's difficult, we think, to uh, lead people to Jesus. So I want to go just through a few examples of why 
it's hard to be uh, good. How do we avoid being innocent bystanders? How do we avoid doing it? How do we get ourselves out there actively meeting people's needs? Not just having cognitive compassion in the mind, but using that compassion, that love and that faith and working it out, expressing it to other people. How do we do that? I think the easiest way is to recognize the reasons why we are sometimes innocent bystanders at all. If we can recognize and identify the reasons that we find it so difficult, we can then work on those and hopefully improve them. So why is it that we are always being an innocent bystander? And take note, uh, not all of these you may find relatable, but I hope that at least one or two of them you can identify with purely so that then you can go and ask for the Holy Spirit to work on that area of your life and be able to improve it. So, reason number one, the diffusion of responsibility. As we talked about before, this idea that there are so many other people who can do the witnessing. Ah, that's what we have a pastor for. The pastor does all the witnessing. I don't need to do anything. Or that's the elder's job. We're all commissioned to go and make disciples. We're all commissioned just in our daily lives, even just to live a life uh, glorifying God. Maybe not even necessarily talking about God all the time. Maybe it's just living a Christian life and modeling that character and that love of Jesus to people. It's so easy to do when there are three billion Christians in the world. If there's so many of us, it's way easier to do, delegate responsibility to the other three billion Christians in the world. But God calls us to do it here and now. There's also a fear of being dragged into someone else's trouble. I can imagine that a lot of people on that night when Kitty was being murdered, who really wants to go and take on somebody who's being that violent and that aggressive? There is a legitimate fear there of being dragged into someone else's trouble. But you see that all throughout Jesus' ministry, it didn't really seem to be much of a concern to him. If he saw someone in need, if it was in his capabilities, he was willing to help them. And that ties in also to this fear of judgment or losing one's reputation. If I help out this person, they're going to associate me with them. Uh, Jesus also didn't seem to have a problem with this. All throughout his ministry, he was having dinner with tax collectors and sinners and all these people who were looked down upon in society. But Jesus saw that these people who were looked down upon in society were the people who needed that love of God more than anyone else. And so he didn't have this fear. He overcame this fear of judgment or of losing one's reputation. There's also a supposed lack of time. Sometimes it is the case. We live very busy lives and it's hard to make time for ourselves and alone for other people. But sometimes we do just watch by and let opportunities slide past us. We should always be praying for opportunities to lead people to Christ and also to have the discernment to recognize those opportunities. I think if we pray to God for those opportunities, God will give us that time and give us those opportunities to work through. There's also the question of apathy or boredom. For some people, it could just be the fact that they couldn't care less. Ideas such as being dragged into someone else's business or judgment doesn't really concern them. They're just not, they're disinterested in the idea of outreach and witnessing. But I think asking the question of apathy or boredom is incredibly integral to this process. Boredom just indicates sort of disinterest. But apathy is a bit more severe. It shows that you really just don't care at all. And there's a difference. I think boredom can be more easily uh, overcome than apathy, but both 
should be addressed if that is preventing us from uh, being actively expressing our faith. And other moral justifications. There are just so many, isn't it so easy to come up with reasons and excuses in our minds to not do something? Or sometimes to do something as well. But in this case, it's so easy. Ah, maybe later. Uh, I don't want to, I don't I have other responsibilities. There are so many other reasons and moral justifications that we come up with in our minds um, that really prevent us from going and showing that love of God to people. But I don't want to end on a sad note, a dour note either. Remember the psalm that we read at the very beginning, the psalm called the joy of forgiveness. All of us at one point has committed the sin of omission. I know I have on several occasions. But the joy is that we can experience that forgiveness. Isn't that what the parable was about? Jesus coming down and healing us from sin, showing forgiveness. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. We know that whenever we come to Jesus with a repentant heart, he can forgive us. And then once we experience that forgiveness and that love and compassion from Jesus, we then can express that to other people. I'd just like to wrap up by reading the parable of the Good Samaritan one last time. But as we read through it, I'm going to insert myself into the story. Pardon me. I'm going to insert myself into the story, and as you read along with me, I'd like for you to insert yourself in the story as well, and to read it as a personal message written to you, almost as though you were recounting this story happening to you. So, Luke chapter 10, and beginning in verse 30. I went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and on the way I fell among thieves who stripped me of my clothing, wounded me, departed me, leaving me half dead. Now by chance a certain friend of mine came down the road, and when he saw me, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a family member of mine, he arrived at the place, came, looked, and passed by on the other side. But Jesus, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw me, he had compassion. So he went to me, bandaged my wounds, poured on oil and wine, and set me on his own animal brought me to an inn and took care of me. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to me who fell among thieves? He who showed mercy on him. And so Jesus says to all of us, go and do likewise.